At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 719th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your local food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who researches the changes occurring in our food systems. We're talking with Phil Howard, who asks, who controls what we eat. Phil is a member of the International Panel of Experts on Sustainable Food Systems and a professor at Michigan State University. He teaches undergraduate and graduate courses in community, food, and agriculture, and a graduate course in the political ecology of food. Phil's research focuses on the food system, which involves all of the steps required to produce food and get it to our plates, from farming and processing to distribution and consumption. He is the author of Who Controls What We Eat, published by Bloomsbury Academic. There was also one little piece that you shared with us, Phil, that I want to share, and that is a small number of corporations from the supermarket to the seed industry have increased their power over modern food systems. Although monopolies in the food industries are not common, oligopolies of just a few firms controlling most of a market are increasing in many nations as well as globally, such as just four firms controlling more than half of the world's agriculture chemicals and proprietary seeds. That's what we'll talk about today. Welcome to the show today, Phil. Are you ready to rock? Yeah, it's great to be on the program. Excellent. Thanks for being here. And I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to go get where you're at today. Yeah, I think it really started uh, when I was uh, working towards a PhD in rural sociology. All my grandparents grew up on farms, but I grew up in the suburbs and food came from the supermarket for me. I didn't really know much about what happened before it got to the store. But working with professors like Bill Heffernan, I learned that in many industries throughout the food chain, there are fewer and fewer firms that are becoming more and more powerful. And I was really shocked by this and I just decided to keep studying it and also communicating to others what, what was going on. And in your introduction, you distinguish something be- between a monopoly and an oligopoly. Can you tell us how that applies to our food system? Instead of the entire market being controlled by one firm, which is the definition of a monopoly, what's more common is oligopoly, where a few firms, usually a handful of firms, have a big share of the market. So one that we're pretty familiar with is Coke and Pepsi. It's a near duopoly. They have over 70% of soft drink sales between those two firms. So there's this appearance of competition. But in actuality, they don't really compete on things like price. It's just more about marketing and branding and convincing people to join the tribe of Coke or the tribe of Pepsi. 
And how is this applying to, so that's Coke and Pepsi. Let's talk about how it applies to what we actually eat every day. If you go sector by sector, it's similar. Just uh, about four firms control almost everything in the cereal aisle. Two firms control about 70% of what in the beer aisle and on. And what's also common is that these firms are expanding out and taking over other, what used to be single sectors. So Tyson, which started out by dominating chicken, is now dominant in pork and in beef. So you see that playing out in many parts of the food system where these firms just keep getting bigger and bigger. You mentioned beer, local breweries, or in this case, national breweries, but there's been a big push for local food and local beer. What are you seeing in that arena? I see these two opposing trends where the biggest beer firms globally are getting more powerful. Half the beer in the world is brewed by just four firms and one firm by itself brews 29%. That's Anheuser-Busch InBev, which is headquartered in Belgium. But there's this counter trend since homebrewing was legalized in the US in 1978. There's been an explosion of craft breweries. So we now have over 9,000 craft breweries in the United States and they're gaining market share. So, you know, well over 10% of sales in the US are independent craft breweries. But then there's this dynamic where some of the most successful craft breweries have, are now being acquired by those big brewers. There's both resistance to these trends, but also attempts to co-opt that resistance and bring that back to the bigger, more powerful firms. We're seeing a difference, but then the big firms are buying them, buying up the small ones? Yes, it's partially successful. Nearly all of the nationally distributed independent craft brewers have been acquired. Recently, Bell's Brewery in my home state of Michigan was acquired by a Japanese brewer. But some of the firms that are content to stay local, to stay in these really small niches, are doing well. So we do see a lot of smaller independent breweries that are just making a living, they're not making killing, they're able to thrive because people want to support what they're doing. And through your research, have you discovered how these companies get so big? Yeah, they have a lot of help from governments in terms of subsidies, policies that make it harder for smaller firms just to stick with the beer industry. It's very challenging to be distributed in many states. We have a as a result of prohibition, this three-tier system where breweries have to pick one distributor to get onto the retail shelves. Mm -hmm. Distributors have a lot of power and big brewers have a lot of influence over many of those distributors and they're able to crowd out those smaller players. Unfortunately, the government has reinterpreted what were stronger antitrust laws in the 1900s by the 1980s both government regulators and federal judges started to be much more permissive and allow firms to acquire many of their competitors. And we're seeing this all across the board, all the way from vegetables to beer to meat. Yeah. And it's every stage of the food system. It's happening in retailing. For example, Kroger wants to acquire Safeway Albertsons. It's happening in farm inputs, like the big machinery, like tractors, but also seeds and chemicals and fertilizers. So other than these few bright spots where there's more and more local food at the national and global level, there's also this, this trend where the big firms are just acquiring more and more of their competitors. 
And have we seen examples of this in the news lately? Yeah, in addition to, to Kroger buying out Albertsons or attempting to, earlier this year, the U.S. government allowed Cargill, which is the number three soybean processor, the number three beef processor, they were allowed to acquire Sanderson Farms, which is the number three chicken processor in the U.S. So that was wow. with a joint venture partner called Continental Grain. But really amazing that this was allowed. And it's because the way the federal judges interpret laws, the regulators felt like they had no choice but to allow it to go through. Wow. Why does it matter if we have a few companies controlling our food system? Unfortunately, there are a lot of negative impacts. One is that when these firms become more powerful, they increase prices for consumers, and then they drive down what they pay their workers and their suppliers. They also have a lot of negative impacts on ecosystems and communities that they don't have to pay the full cost for. So we, as citizens, as taxpayers, end up paying the cost for those impacts. And then from a logic perspective, I think that we can say that they also have a lot more control over what they charge. Yeah, and we're seeing that recently where many of these powerful seed companies, meat processors, they're actually on calls with their investors bragging about the fact that they're able to increase the prices that they're charging much more than they're increasing input costs. So inflation wow. that we're seeing is a result of firms having the ability to raise prices and then doing so. And they're doing it. Yeah. Yeah, because they're, when four firms control over 80% of beef processing in the U.S., there aren't many other options. And these four firms, only one has to just signal their intention to raise prices, and then the other three will find it beneficial to do the same. Wow. And who are you seeing out there trying to make a difference in fighting back or changing this? It's occurring at a lot of levels. Some people are trying to create alternatives to this highly consolidated system and to keep those from being co-opted. Others are attempting to put pressure on governments to take to go back to the original intent of those antitrust laws. And there are even people in governments who are trying to take steps to address some of these problems. The White House, for example, on their blog, you can read about a lot of these problems in terms of the meat processors bragging about increasing prices on conference calls, that's all on the White House blog. There's only so much that can be done at various, in each of the various branches of government. And the federal judges, unfortunately, are, that's going to be really difficult to change the way they are interpreting the laws. Wow. And one of the things that you've done is you're a professor, thank you for that, but you've also written a book, Concentration of Power in the Food System, Who Controls What We Eat? How did this book come about? It's just an extension of the work I've been doing that has been in articles and reports. A lot of my work has been in collaboration with colleagues at the University of Missouri, where I got my PhD. So I mentioned Bill Heffernan and Mary Hendrickson and Doug Constance. Those are some colleagues that I work with. And then we had never put that into a book form to be able to reach a wider audience, particularly undergraduates, worked with the publisher and some great editors, David Goodman and Michael Goodman, to put, a, put this all in a book that looks at each stage of the food system from retailing all the way to the inputs that farmers buy and what's happening. When this, I have dubbed it the local food economy. And we all participate in the local food economy every day because we eat. It's just a lot of it doesn't come from local. And 
this is, can you tell us a little bit about your food system process from retailing, distribution, packaging, like that? That's basically from farm to the concept of from farm to plate, right? Yeah. So in the book, it helps to focus on a few examples. So I look at leafy greens like lettuce. I look at pork and milk. So these are things that depending on where you live, you could find very locally, or it may be coming from halfway around the world. Um, so I look at some of the firms that have become very dominant for those particular food items or commodities. But also, look, there are incredible number of very local options. If you go to your farmer's market, for example, or your local retail food cooperative, there, there are many alternatives to those big firms. But if you go to Walmart, uh, it's going to be much harder to find more, more local foods. Yeah. When we'll get to what our listeners can do here in a little while. In your book, Chapter 9, is called Endgame. Tell me about that. If these trends simply continue, the logical end game would be to have Amazon controlling and maybe one other firm controlling the entire food system. I think there are some barriers to that happening, with one being people are starting to get more concerned about what's happening and are more resistant to it. The problem is so much of it is hidden. If you go to your cereal aisle, it's dozens and dozens of brands, and it's much harder to see that they're actually all owned by just four firms. The end game is just describing what could happen if more people don't organize to prevent that from happening. I've said for decades that our food system's a miracle. The fact that we feed 330 million people every day, that's, that's an accomplishment in itself. But it's also, on the other side, very fragile from the transportation and that kind of stuff. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that was illustrated pretty dramatically when outbreaks of COVID in meat processing plants led to those plants being shut down, and we saw empty supermarket shelves across the country. And that's what happens when you have so much pr production concentrated in so few plants. So that's what makes it really fragile and disrupted. There are many other things that could disrupt our food system, such as a ship blocking the Suez Canal around the world. Until those disruptions happen, everything appears to be humming along smoothly. But I think people are more and more aware of seeing those empty supermarket shelves helped a lot of people realize that the, this food system is more fragile than many of us thought. And how has the fighting in Ukraine impacted our food system? Yeah, it's impacted food systems around the world. They are a major wheat producer, also sunflower oil and fertilizers. And fertilizers in particular have impacted farmers in the U.S. Prices have skyrocketed. We've seen farmers really try and figure out how to cut down on their fertilizer use or find alternative sources of fertilizer because globally we have what are essentially cartels that control these industries. These are very profitable industries and farmers, many of them, the margins are really small, so they can't afford to pay dramatically higher prices for their inputs. That's part of what is why we're seeing higher food prices is because the input costs for farmers are increasing. And I think we're probably going to continue to see that, right? Yeah. Fossil fuels are another potential source of skyrocketing prices we've seen in the past where the price of oil gets very high. That's another major input for farmers. And because this system is so fragile, I think it's very likely that there are going to be more disruptions and higher prices in the future. And 
what can our listeners do to help? Like, how can we make a difference here? To have more resilient food systems, we need more diverse food systems. We need to support about 70% of a typical American's calories comes from just corn, soy, wheat, and dairy. So seeking out other types of foods, diversifying the food system, supporting other types of organizations like cooperatives and collective farms and smaller independent farms rather than just the very big firms. These are all things that we can do to help shift the food system in a more resilient direction, but it can't be all on just individual consumers. Our choices are very constrained, so we also need to pressure governments to stop subsidizing the big firms and stop allowing them to become so much more powerful. Yeah, wow. How do we do that? It's very difficult, but we're beginning to see some politicians that are more responsive to some of these ideas have legislation that's being introduced in Congress to try and prevent some of these huge mergers and acquisitions. And they usually don't go very far, but if more and more is applied to elected officials, then they're going to be more likely to respond. Yeah. You A little while ago, you said that companies like Amazon might be controlling our food system. And when you said that, it struck me as, hold on, they sell books. <laughs> Where did that come from? Yeah, Amazon is now the owner of Whole Foods, and they also are opening grocery stores under the name Amazon Go. And they also deliver to people's doors many groceries, they become very involved in the food system. And one of the things they did after acquiring Amazon was they started talking to producers to figure out ways to convince them to give Amazon a better deal so that they could under get, undercut competitors. So we're already seeing Amazon's control of the market for groceries just continue to grow and grow. Wow. And I think we're going to see more and more of that as companies become bigger and bigger. Yeah. It's really concerning that uh, Kroger, they're already the second largest grocer in the U.S. after Walmart, but they would become much, much bigger, which means a lot of suppliers are going to have fewer and fewer options. A lot of people who shop for groceries are going to have fewer and fewer options. And it's only and when we see fewer and fewer options for both suppliers and buyers that gives those people in the middle, they're creating a choke point deliberately, which allows them to have a lot more control and drive down the prices they pay their suppliers and drive up what they charge all their customers. Wow. So buy local, grow your own in your backyard and pressure our government to change the conversation about what we subsidize. Yeah. Did I get that right? Yeah. And you have to be really careful to make sure you're supporting something that's local and independent, particularly if it's not coming directly from a farmer's market or something like that, mm -hmm. to really look at the labels and decode the ownership relations. So tell me about your book. Yeah. The book you can get through the publisher, Bloomsbury Academic, or you could maybe find it at your local independent bookstore or have them order it. Or there's some national independent booksellers that you can order through. Yeah, I would encourage you to not go through Amazon if at all possible. Yeah, the book starts with retailing and then follows, focuses on a few products like leafy greens, pork, dairy, and goes through processors and 
distributors and all the way up to the inputs like seeds and chemicals, and then concludes with what can we do about these trends? Excellent. Thank you for that. And I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Wasn't a very good student my first few years of college. And then <laughs> you and me too. <laughs> yeah. And then my junior year, I actually literally failed most of my classes. I just wasn't very motivated and I should have withdrawn, but I didn't even know that was an option, unfortunately. So I took some time off and uh, kind of regained my motivation, went back, retook all the classes I failed, got A's, got straight A's after that. And so what I learned from that is just what a difference motivation makes. And so I bring that into my teaching. I really emphasize readings and videos that are engaging, even if they may not cover all the topics I would like to cover, because be being engaged, people are going to learn a lot more than if they're not engaged. Oh, big time. Yeah. So my first semester at Arizona State University in 1981, my GPA, 0.5. I got two Ds <laughs> and an F. <laughs> and it sounds like I probably took a few more years off than you did. I, I took 19 years off. Oh, wow. And then went back to college and got a bachelor's and a master's. And, and the second time around, I was all in, straight A's, having fun, really enjoying it. My, my lesson from that was have a purpose. For me, it was have a purpose when I got to college. Yeah, definitely. And what do you consider your biggest success? I think it's helping to spread the word about these trends that are so hidden. Sometimes I will meet people for the first time and they won't recognize my name. But when I start talking about what I do, I realize, oh, I actually have one of your visuals on my fridge. So to oh, have nice. that reach is pretty rewarding. And did you get a lot of input? Yeah, I think find it really insightful. The, the visuals are designed to be able to take in the big picture at a glance. So it's it's different than reading a table with a lot of numbers. It comes across pretty quickly. Where do we find these visuals at? Yeah, my website is philhoward.net. Perfect. And what drives you? What's your big why? Why are you doing this? Yeah, I really value democracy. One of the things I like to say is I talked about the negative impacts of these trends earlier of fewer and fewer people making decisions over the food we eat. But even if there were no negative impacts, I would have a problem with it because it's so elitist, the control of our food system taken away from us. Have you ever read anything by Daniel Quinn? Yeah. Because he talks a lot about who owns our food and how it came to be. Yeah, it's been a while since I read that. but And if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Yeah, I recently read a book that just came out called The Agricultural Dilemma, How Not to Feed the World. It's by Glenn Davis Stone. He's an anthropologist at Washington University in St. Louis. And he looks at these, these claims that you hear constantly that we need to start food production to meet the needs of a growing population. And he says, this is exactly backward. We've, for decades and decades, produced too much food. And the problem is how to get rid of that food. And so we're doing crazy things like burning up corn in our fuel tanks, for example, because of government subsidies that have propped up fertilizer industries and corn that's been bred to take up a lot of nitrogen. And then so we have too much food. And he really looks at all the evidence that we need to stop buying into this, these feed the world claims that are only forcing these lock-ins that are making these 
agricultural input firms just more and more powerful. And more and more money. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the Agricultural Dilemma, How Not to Feed the World, the Glenn Davis Stone. It says this book is about the three fundamental forms of agriculture, Malthusianism, which is expansion, industrialization, external input dependent, and intensification. That sounds like a great book to read. Thanks for that. Yeah, yeah. And intensification is a wonky term. So I think agroecology is probably a better descriptor of what he's talking about in that section. Oh, very good. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Yeah, one of the things I like to always keep at the front of my mind is that as humans, our short-term memories are pretty limited. We have great long-term memories, but for short-term memories, if you're playing tic-tac-toe, it's such a simple game. But if you were playing it just in your head, it would become really difficult quickly. Yes. So I try to always have that one key point and then support it with three to five points, no more than five. And then each of those three to five points, I, if I have time, I can support with another three to five points. But for most things, it doesn't help to present it like a mystery novel and save the key point to the end. The key point mm -hmm. has to be right up front. Otherwise, our short-term memories can't figure out what's going on. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Phil. Yeah, thanks for having me. How can our listeners get a hold of you? My website is philhoward.net, and I have more contact information there, like my email. Excellent. And your book, please buy from a local distributor. Yeah. You can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash philhoward. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.